Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. Ursula Le Guin is one of those people who seems to need no introduction. But in case you don't know her, she's one of the two or three greatest modern writers of imaginative literature, or speculative fiction, or whatever we're calling it. Le Guin herself was uncomfortable with such over-particularizing labels as science fiction, or fantasy, or young adult— which she saw more as advertising labels than as meaningful terms for the kinds of stories she wanted to write. In the afterword to A Wizard of Earthsea, the topic of today's episode, she writes that those sorts of stories are not determined by the marketing needs of the publishing industry, but by the imaginative worlds that come down to us from a very old tradition of storytelling. She writes, quote, that is the tradition of fantastic tales and hero stories, which comes down to us like a great river from sources high in the mountains of myth, a confluence of folk and fairy tale, classical epic, medieval and renaissance and eastern romance, romantic ballad, Victorian imaginative tale, and 20th century book of fantastic adventure, such as T.H. White's Arthurian Cycle and Tolkien's great book. Most of this marvelous flood of literature was written for adults but modernist literary ideology shunted it all to children. And kids could and did swim in it happily, as in their native element, at least until some teacher or professor told them that they had to come out, dry off, and breathe modernism ever after. End quote. A Wizard of Earthsea is often called a fantasy book for young adults, but you have only to read a few pages of it to see what a paltry understanding that is. It's one of those books that feels like a hitherto undiscovered Beowulf, like the founding story of a national literature that belongs to a nation that happens not to exist. Or perhaps it's like one of those imaginary objects from Borges's make-believe world of Tlun that somehow begin manifesting in the real world. A Wizard of Earthsea is a book that doesn't feel like someone wrote it. It feels like a direct emanation from the dream world we share with everyone who has come before us and everyone who will come after. In this episode, we end up suggesting that the real stories are those that come from that dreaming, even the most undreamlike and down-to-earth works of modernist realism. Or, put another way, all fiction is fantasy. After a short, much-needed rest at the holidays, the Weird Studies Patreon is back. Around New Year's, JF and I had an email exchange on an essay I'd published on Patreon called Diviner's Time. And at the start of the new year, we published that exchange for our $3 and up patrons, whose resulting comments prompted me to a fresh round of writing, resulting in a rewritten version of Diviner's Time that I just presented at the IU Musicology Colloquium. And a couple hours ago, JF and I recorded a full-length episode on that, which will doubtless set off a new cycle of thoughtful comments and response that will lead who knows where. All of which is to say, Weird Studies is now much more than a podcast— it's the hub of a thinking and writing community that is collectively creating something much larger than anything J.F. and I imagined when we started Weird Studies. 
So I guess I just want to say thanks to everyone who's making it happen over there on Patreon. And also to say that if you're not already a subscriber to the Weird Studies Patreon, you are missing out. What the hell's wrong with you? Anyway, enjoy the show. Try to summarize the plot of this book in one minute. Can you okay. do it? Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a coming-of-age story about a young man with a great talent in magic in a fantasy world that Ursula Le Guin called Earthsea, a kind of like vast archipelago of uh, islands infused with magic. And um, this kid goes off to school Harry Potter style to learn how to be uh, a wizard, but is plagued by his own appetite, his own ambitions, which take the form of a kind of shadow that stalks him throughout his uh, early adulthood until he finally ends up having to confront himself. You so know, he has just, to confront the shadow yeah. and spoiler alert, it turns out to be, you know, his shadow, like in the Jungian sense. Right. Except that Ursula Le Guin insists she didn't know about Jung when she wrote it. But Which I why, find very easy to believe, actually. Yeah, I mean, the shadow. <laughs> yeah, Jung didn't Jung invent Jung didn't shadows. invent that shit, yeah. <laughs> um, he, he would have been appalled if we, we, if, we, if we said that he invented those concepts. He was an empirical scientist who discovered things that were already there. So, mm. um, so, uh, so yeah. So, Larry, so it's, yeah, it's, you, it's you a, did it. It's Excellent. a coming-of-age story about a wizard. What struck me were her ideas about magic, just the world. Like one of the reasons I love fantasy is world, the worlds, the world building that goes into these books. And I, I just love seeing how an author takes these pieces that have been lying around forever, you know, little pieces of mythological lore and recombines them into something new. And it's fun to contrast, for, for instance, Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea with, you know, Tolkien's Middle Earth or any of the other fantasy worlds that were invented in the last 120 years or so. And uh, I was struck by how well written it is and how the level of literary quality is very, very high. And it's a, mm. it's, it's, it's a very touching, very moving book. Um, it is. Yeah. And also a very politically charged book in the best sense, like in the sense that it's not trying to make a point. It's just, it's, it is a point, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. So the writing in particular is something that I want to pay special attention to. I like what you said about the style of it. I think there's a lot to be said about the specific literary expression of this book, which is a little bit different even from other books in the same series. So The Wizard of Earthsea ended up being the first in a cycle of novels that she wrote over quite a span of years and short stories as well, all of which take place in the same fictional world, this vast archipelago. And even in that series, I think A Wizard of Earthsea stands out for having a kind of writing that is plain and powerful. Uh, there's a certain kind of artistic register where a style can be pared down to a kind of classical 
almost blankness, you know, something that's almost a stylistic. Yeah. You know, think about, uh, you know, the obvious example would be classic Greek architecture. I remember as a kid not understanding why artsy types and intellectuals would whip themselves up into such an enthusiasm for Greek temples, for like the Acropolis, for example, right. where I was like, it's a box with columns. I don't get what is so exciting about that. And yet there is a kind of beauty that comes through the pleasing proportions. Right. Every element in its right place, nothing out of place. You know, it's a limited number of elements put in a kind of perfect order in such a way that it has a tremendous affective charge. Yeah. And this, to me, is the trick that Le Guin managed in her writing for this book. I think it's actually true of her writing in general. She doesn't go in for a lot of showy bullshit. Her writing is always just sort of like well-crafted, unobtrusive. She's never trying to do things as a writer, stylistic things that call your attention to them where you're like, oh, she's doing this really cool thing with, you know, rhetoric and style, the way someone like David Foster Wallace in a way is always, you're always noticing the things he's doing stylistically to get his effects. But the ratio of plainness to emotive power is particularly noticeable in Wizard of Earthsea. Okay, so Ged, the name of the wizard, Ged, as you said, he's in love with his own power, his extraordinary talent as a magician. And it all goes badly for him because he's sort of provoked by another magician named Jasper, who's sort of a snotty rich kid. And they get in a duel of magic that goes very badly for Ged because he attempts a kind of magic that is much too powerful for him to control. And it's this act of magic that brings this kind of shadow beast into the world. At first, he doesn't know that it's his shadow. It's just a shadow, a monster made of shadows that has incredible powers to turn other people into zombies to assume the form of other people. And his great quest in this novel is at first to run from it and then finally to run towards it, to chase it, and to discover its secret. And of course, the secret is that it's him. It's the obverse of him. It's his shadow side. But as he's recovering from this botched magical working that injures him terribly and ends up killing somebody else, he's shaken and afflicted by an awareness of his own guilt, that he's done something really bad. And his best friend, a wizard named Vetch, comes to him and pays him, I would say pays him a compliment because that's trivializing it a little bit, but performs the ultimate act of friendship. And I should explain the way the magical system in this book works is that magic comes from knowing the true names of things. So in this world, human beings speak various languages, and those languages are just like our languages. There are conventions where a word is a more or less arbitrary phoneme applied to a category of objects. But the idea is that there's something called the old speech. There's an old language, which is a language that dragons speak. And this is a language made up of the true names of things. 
if you know the true name of a thing, for example, if you know the true name of a pot, then you can fix the pot. You don't need to join it with glue. You can say a magic word and you can make a broken pot whole again. And human beings also have true names. And if you know somebody's true name, you have magical power over them. You have ultimate power over them and they have no power over you. So magical names are guarded jealously. They are known only to the person who gives you the name and to yourself. And in this world, you might tell your wife or husband your true name if after many years you've settled into a real place of trust and love. You might tell a friend in your lifetime. You might have a friend who you trust enough to tell your true name. And at this point in the novel, when Ged's confidence is absolutely shot when he is at his lowest. Vetch, his friend, comes to him and says, well, I'm leaving. I'm leaving this wizard school on the island of Rogue. And I'll read the passage. He says, I will go home to see my brothers and the sister you have heard me speak of. I left her a little child and soon she'll be having her naming. It's strange to think of. And so I'll find me a job of wizardry somewhere among the little isles. Oh, I would stay and talk with you, but I can't. My ship goes out tonight, and the tide is turned already. Sparrowhawk, if ever your way lies east, come to me. And if ever you need me, send for me. Call on me by my name, Estariol. At that, Ged lifted his scarred face, meeting his friend's eyes. Estariol, he said. My name is Ged. Then, quietly, they bade each other farewell, and Vetch turned and went down the stone hallway and left Roke. Ged stood a while, like one who has received great news and must enlarge his spirit to receive it. It was a great gift that Vetch had given him, the knowledge of his true name. And as particularly the sentence, Ged stood a while, like one who has received great news and must enlarge his spirit to receive it. It's such a beautiful and true phrase. Yeah. You know, you think of your own experience and you think of extraordinary moments. Like, for example, the first time my wife said, I love you to me, where so much comes in. It's so meaningful that mm. it almost feels like you have to stop and allow your soul to expand, to encompass this vast new truth. Yeah. in your life. I've never seen anybody express that truth, much less express it in such a plain yet powerful way. Yeah. And that to me is just an exemplary line, but by no means an unusual line. This book is simply full of lines that just, you know, like an arrow striking straight to the bullseye of a target. They just hit you square and they say so much in a short space of time. It's not a long book, but it says so much. It's a really meaningful book. Yeah, you're absolutely right. If nothing else, people should read this book for that kind of conveying of the human condition, to put it in the kind of cliched way that she does so beautifully for a mm. modern writer. She was a feminist and she was working in a male-dominated genre, working with quote-unquote kind of patriarchal 
ideas of like kings and <laughs> knights and male wizards. I mean, her characters are all, almost all male in this story. She was still working within that. She eventually started to put in more and more female characters into the Earthsea novels. But despite that, she recognizes some universal truths that transcend any particular political construal of the human, you know? Yeah. And so in that way, she's joining a deeper and older tradition of literary art that isn't reducible to the nevertheless extremely important work of exploring and expanding and challenging received opinions through literature. I mean, that's part of what she's doing, but it's also inscribing itself in a deeper tradition. There's no cynicism in Ursula Le Guin. And, and it's in those lines that you see that. It's in those little incredibly elegant expressions of truths that each of us will recognize from our own experience that this book really kind of distinguishes itself. At the same time, just as in the example you, you cited of the Roman temple, which looks so simple and plain, but in fact... In order to make something that elegant, that plain, that simple, you need to do a whole lot of work. First of all, simplicity needs to be discovered in a world of chaos like our own. Simplicity isn't given. We take it for granted because cultures that precede us have done the work of trying to figure out what the simple is, like what proportions mm. are. Um, mm. I've been reading a lot of Greek philosophy recently and just marveling at, especially in Plato and some of the pre-Socratics, their discovery of geometry, of proportion, these things were not known before. I mean, they were known elsewhere in the world. I'm, I'm studying Greek philosophy. They got a lot of their ideas from the from the Near East, from the Babylonians and the Mesopotamian cultures where a lot of these discoveries were made first. But the thing is that these things had to be discovered and they could only be discovered through a kind of relentless confrontation with chaos, which is the given. What we're surrounded with is just one thing after another in a kind of like, an almost like a mad proliferation of newness that's constantly going on. And in that, humans were able to find proportions, find what simplicity is. And then we're able to create art like the Grecian urn that Keats famously writes about that somehow encapsulates the laws of, of the universe. Or the Greek temple, like in the writings of Heidegger, Heidegger in this, The Origins of the Work of Art, writes about the Greek temple as creating or bringing forth a world from the surrounding landscape. Like the landscape is completed by this temple somehow turning this landscape into a, a world. And so there's a lot of work, there's a lot under the hood when you look at sentences like the one you read. Or for instance, there's another moment where she's talking about Ged's uh, realizing how incredibly powerful and dangerous this shadow being is. And uh, the narrator, who interestingly is writing, it's, it's an intramundane narrator. We don't know who the narrator is, but we know that it's someone of this world. It's not Ursula yeah. Le Guin. It's not like Salman Rushdie, who's like, hey, I'm Salman Rushdie and look what's going on in this crazy <laughs> world. Yeah. Um, she's in a very uncynical, very kind of true to form way. She's adopting a voice from within her world. So it reads like a chronicle of Ged written in Earthsea. Yeah, and, um, that's right. And so anyways, but the narrator at this moment is trying to capture Ged's sudden kind of realization. 
And the realization is that this shadow does not operate under the laws of this world. The way the narrator expresses it is as follows. Now began a bad time. When he dreamed of the shadow, or so much as thought of it, he felt always the same cold dread, sense and power drained out of him, leaving him stupid and astray. He raged at his cowardice, but that did no good. He sought for some protection, but there was none. The thing was not flesh, not alive, not spirit, unnamed, having no being but what he himself had given it, a terrible power outside the laws of the sunlit world. And the, the phrase I was thinking about is th that last one, a terrible power outside the laws of the sunlit world. Mm. And um, uh, I mean, just that little phrase uh, captures a kind of like, a primordial kind of dichotomy or duality uh, that that is at play the minute you start thinking about what reality is, which is like the, there's the sunlit world of the knowable, and then there's this terrible dark power underneath it. If we mm -hmm. want to use tarot imagery, we could contrast the sun card with the moon card. Mm. Um, the sun card being like a child out, child sitting on a cow, is it? It's not a cow, but a white horse. Right. That the little child in the sun card is seated right. upon. Right. He is seated upon, yeah. With the sun shining, everything is visible. Everything is seen. Everything is there. And then the moon card, which is this lobster crawling out of the water with these uh, hounds howling at the moon and uh, just a, kind of a really busy card and just the obverse of that sunlit world. So you have this, this world where, that we can know and manage but the shadow comes from this part of the world that undergirds it and that we cannot know and we cannot manage. And in that little phrase, we know that he can't defeat the shadow. He can only accept the, ex the existence of this terrible power. And in the end, it's by accepting that the shadow leaves him alone. It's by accepting it. It's by, by incorporating it into himself. So she has a, an extremely elegant way of delivering complex metaphysical ideas, which you don't even have to pay attention to. If you're a 12 year old reading this book, which I, I wish I were, I wish I'd read this when I was younger. Um, the metaphysical implications of what she's writing about when it comes to like, for example, the doctrine of names and magic, and which is, has a long history in real magic and real world magic. And this kind of uh, allusion to archetypal forces and that sort of thing. I mean, you wouldn't pick up on it, but it would nevertheless do its work on you because on some level, this terrible power is inside us. We all know this stuff deep down. And this is what the best children literature should do is give you the education of the wise in the form that a young person can consume and benefit from. One of the things that I wanted to say about Wizard of Earthsea is that it's almost like a fairy tale. It's a piece of modern fiction, and yet it feels like what it purports to be. As you say, the narrative voice makes it feel like it's a story from within that world. But, you know, you could read this and feel like it's one of those stories that has no author, 
Like Beowulf or something. Like Beowulf, yeah. Like an epic story that seems to be the upwelling of a collective imagination or a collective unconscious of a people. It has that kind of a feeling of like articulating things that go beyond the contingencies of this particular society at this particular time. It feels archetypal. This is something we were talking about with Matt Carden when he was on the show, that the literary sphere of the modern is one that's market segmented into all these little genres that are you know aimed at different groups of people and then those kinds of stories the beowulf kind of stories that becomes fantasy right or maybe it becomes sci-fi or horror but it becomes genreified and they become special cases rather than being just what stories are we tend to ghettoize stories of that type yeah. And say, oh, well, that's a, a fantasy story and so on. But a fantasy story such as this one, when it's really happening, it attains something of the power of those stories that were created before this genrefication, before we cut up stories into a bunch of little postage stamp sized plots of land, each of which is going to be worked and territorialized and monetized by some separate concern. Every now and then you read a fantasy story that reminds you of the condition of fiction where there are no genres, there are simply stories. Yeah, that's that's a great point. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think that's a really important point because, okay, so fantasy in, in modern literary criticism has often been called regressive, um, yes. even sometimes um, surreptitiously or subliminally fascist. Yes. Um, Tolkien is often described as a, through the films and through, you know, thanks to Peter Jackson now, um, this proto-fascism is now being ingested by new generations that should know better. This kind of like post-enlightenment kind of thing. Yeah. And that goes of a piece with a particular type of literary criticism, which reduces all art to its political content, to its mm-hmm. a superstructural function in Marxist terms. And then, mm-hmm. of course, something like Beowulf would just be a kind of way to reify and hypostatize or like confirm or corroborate or support mm-hmm. a kind of uh, basically unjust kingly social structure. Yeah. Uh, and that this kind of universal truth that we've been talking about is a complete fabulation, a complete... Yeah. So that's the one thing. But the other thing I wanted to say, and this would be in in the way of arguing against that point of view, is that it's something else that we talked about in the Matt Carden episode, is that ultimately I believe that all fiction is fantasy, precisely mm-hmm. in the same way that Earthsea is fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, even the most realist fiction insofar as that realist fiction is any good, it will be mm-hmm. fantasy. And we could go into why that is, but just, just those two points just kind of popped up for me as you were talking there. Well, you know, I can see why people would feel a little queasy about some of the stuff in, for example, Tolkien, where the world is divided into races and those races have innate qualities. So orcs are wicked and brutish, stupid, cruel. And there's no sense that an orc could go to like a university and become a well-read, humane orc. You know, the idea is like an orc is an orc is an orc. 
And it's the same thing with elves and with dwarves. And there's this idea that modern readers might call essentializing. Mm -hmm. And likewise, if you're reading any number of old stories, uh, for example, if you're reading courtly fiction, you know, if somebody goes to Arabia, you know, the Saracens are sort of like the way orcs are. In other words, they're types. And it's a fundamentally modern idea to insist on the individual and to say that the type is the thing that deludes us or gets us away from reality. And indeed, you and I have made that very argument at length, and most notably in the Silence of the Lambs episode, and then following up on that in uh, the Black Narcissus episode. Our whole thing is that Hannibal Lecter is a character who teaches us, along with Clarice Starling, that you have to take things as they come in their particularity, uh, that for as long as you are stuck in types, you are stuck in an idea of the real, you're not actually perceiving the real. And so I'm actually going to say like those kind of criticisms of fantasy, whether it's someone like Tolkien, who is sort of like bringing back tropes of that old tradition of storytelling, or whether it's the actual old tradition of storytelling. Uh, I'm not going to say it's entirely wrong. But at the same time, on some level that maybe I haven't yet intellectualized, I also feel like it kind of misses the mark a little bit. So why wouldn't you take the critique of typological thinking that we've created in the show? Why wouldn't you use that to criticize fantasy that insists on treating different groups as types and building narratives upon the idea of type? I should say, by the way, that Le Guin doesn't really do that. She manages to avoid this. The closest she comes is in talking about the Kargod peoples, this warlike people who we meet right at the beginning when they invade Ged's island when he's a little kid. And we learn about his first great act of magic where he creates a fog bank that tricks the invaders into falling off a cliff. Anyway, so, you know, the yes. Kargods are, seem to be sort of inherently warlike. And we learn much more about them, actually, in the second book, The Tombs of Atawan. Uh, but uh, other than that, she kind of avoids that. And that's a way in which she manages to sort of have her cake and eat it too. She can attain something of the power of the old stories without falling into a style of narration that's a little hard to swallow if you're a modern. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. okay, let's leave Le Guin off to one side. What about Tolkien? Well, I think, it's, I think it's actually relevant because as she says in the afterward, I mean, part of her goal was to challenge some of these long-standing tropes. Um, yes. So there's a reason why, for example, there's no war in Earthsea. War isn't something people do. I mean, there yeah. are raids. There are raids by those yeah, kind the of Viking gods. Yeah, the yeah. Car God who are kind of a Viking-like race of white. Uh, marauders. White marauders. Because uh, interestingly, the main character in this book is not white. In fact, almost everybody in Earthsea is some shade of brown. Except for the car gods, who are the bad guys. And his friend Vetch, we're told, his skin yeah. is black. Yeah. But it's interesting also that she made a point not only of making it so that the characters are not simply blonde-haired, blue-eyed avatars of Northern European fantasy, uh, but also that the skin color doesn't carry with it terrestrial implications. She's not importing for example, an American idea of what brown skin or black skin or white skin means. No, 
Right. She's using them in a way that's dissociated from terrestrial, political, cultural, e social history. Exactly, exactly. So um, I find that when you actually read courtly fiction, let's say the romances of Chrétien de Troyes or something like that, right. or uh, Mallory or whatever, uh, it's a lot less racist than we would think it is. The Saracens are not portrayed as non-humans, uh, certainly not. Mm -hmm. No one in the Middle Ages thought the Saracens were not human. <laughs> they thought uh, they were not Christian, though. Well, yeah, they were not, and they were not Christian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. that was a problem. And not Christian is a type, a category. Absolutely. And the Saracens thought the same about the Christians. That's how right. large yeah. religious systems work. They form a kind of universe which then necessarily at, at the borders of this universe conflicts with the other universes that are in the neighborhood. I think one of the great achievements of modernity, if nothing else, is to come up with a definition of the human that would mm -hmm. encompass all these different universes. So yeah, absolutely. But the human is still a type. And the fact is that mm -hmm. in Tolkien, um, and I don't want to defend Tolkien too much. He doesn't need it, first of all. And, and plus, it's just a, a minefield. The orcs aren't human. The orcs are elves who were engineered by Saruman. They're like artificial intelligence. Yeah. That's what they are. And they were, uh, not by Saruman, by um, Morgoth, I think, or what's his name? Yes, yeah. that's right. Morgoth created the orcs to fight the elves. The elves right. are kind of like, I guess, an amalgam of what elves were for the Nordic cultures and what angels are for a, the, the Catholic that Tolkien was. And so this dehumanizing of these groups, they're not even dehumanized. They're not even human to begin with. Uh, right. is it, that's a, a distinction that makes a difference, I think, uh, in Tolkien. This is not taking place in our historical universe. It's a world of essences. And I mm -hmm. think to a certain extent, Tolkien is engaging in a study and a modern study of the concept of essence. And I think that's important because I think that I find that in our discussions, yes, we challenge these types of typologies constantly. We challenge essentialism. We speak for the singular, the unknowable, et cetera. But nevertheless, at some point, we're going to have to face the fact that in order to be singular, in order to be singular, you must be a being. And that being can only be expressed physically in the universe according to certain universals and types. For example, that we are all singular doesn't mean that none of us is human, right? Like mm -hmm. there is an essence of the human and part of that essence is the singularity of the individual human. That might be true of all things. Maybe all rocks are both instances of the universal rock, but also singular in it's this rock. I think it was Duns Scotus, one of the great scholastic philosophers, developed a concept of hexaity to try to explain the singularity of each thing, which was inaccessible to us. The only being who could know the true singularity of each thing, in other words, the true name of each thing was God. But yeah. we knew that things had a hexady. So we knew that even though we see each human as kind of like examples of a type, we know that each human is also singular. And we also know that each rock is singular. But that does not cancel out the need for essences and typologies. 
those mm. things are absolutely necessary. And I think that any attempt to think that those things aren't, you've said it yourself, you made the point yourself, that if we didn't have these things, we would live in a mad chaos. A mad chaos with no hope even of expressing anything about that chaos. Like Lewis Carroll is kind of a example of a modern fantasist who's trying to show us a world like that. Yeah. And uh, we see what kind of mad world that is. And even he has to cheat because, <laughs> you know, yeah. things still have to be something, you know, but yeah, in a world exactly. where nothing can be anything, where a thing in reproducing itself from instant to instant is changing completely, has no essential constant, no essential nature. A mm -hmm. world like that would be like literally impossible to depict in, yeah. in, a, in a text or in any Literally form. unthinkable. It's hard to imagine yeah. how thought of any kind could exist in such a world much less representation. Exactly. So maybe if we want to be generous to Tolkien and to other fantasists uh, of that sort, we can at least maybe see them as modern people who are trying to work out this problem, mm. which is a huge problem. Mm. Um, but uh, specifically, I think that we need to look at orcs and Tolkien as a kind of artificial intelligence. Okay, so um, I want to pick up on yeah. that. Okay, so... You can think of a, uh, a fairly typical critique uh, that has become so common as to be unremarkable, which is to say that Tolkien's depiction of orcs is racist because we're being told about and shown this category of untermenschen. Subhumans. Uh, yeah, subhumans. Sentient beings who it is okay to kill. You don't have to feel bad that uh, all these orc soldiers have orc wives and orc kids at home who will never see daddy come home again. You don't have to worry about that. They're beneath that kind of moral notice. And then what you've just said is, yeah, but they're not human. They're like artificial intelligence. Okay, so thought experiment. What if that was a novel in a science fiction register? Again, getting back to that conversation we had with Matt, we were talking about like, what's the difference? Or what are the boundaries between science fiction and fantasy? Semi-seriously, I could say that science fiction is fantasy for people who need a reason. Right. Like you say, okay, we're in this world, Middle Earth. Well, where is Middle Earth? Is it part of modern day Europe? Is it like some previous geological epoch of the world? No, it's not this world. Oh, is it some other planet? No, it's not either this planet or some other planet. It's fantasy. If you are looking for explanations of Middle Earth, you're like, okay, well, where is it exactly? You're asking the wrong questions, but a lot of science fiction where you say, oh, it's on this planet of this star system, uh, right. You're not doing anything all that different from what the fantasist is doing. You're just giving an explanation, something that allows the story to exist within the world as a modern is going to understand it. Correct. Which is a world that has spatiotemporal coordinates. And for some story to happen at all, it needs to occupy some specific spatiotemporal coordinate, right? I think, uh, but I think, I think science fiction goes even further, but yeah. I mean, obviously I'm speaking in broad strokes, right? Right. Uh, so if you think in those terms, then you realize that there's a kind of interchangeability of concepts between fantasy and science fiction. Mm -hmm. And so what is an orc in a Tolkien-esque piece of fiction could be a computer virus in a piece of science fiction, right? And so you could imagine a science fiction writer retelling the story of Lord of the Rings where the orcs become 
little like computer virus things, or maybe robots, evil little Roombas, kind or of ali- sc- or aliens. scuttling around, or a- aliens. Aliens yeah. would be the simplest one. Yeah, like, aliens right. are, are are routinely depicted as innately evil in science fiction. Right, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, even there, if you say aliens, we might imagine like, oh, those would be sentient beings as somewhat like ourselves, but on other planets. And you could imagine somebody who's looking to make a critique of the othering. Uh, basically, what happens in stories like that is you create some category of character to be an other to which horrible things can safely happen. So you can commit genocide against orcs without feeling bad about it because they're not humans. But, you know, somebody who is keen on making that critique is not going to be put off the scent by something like that. They can say, like, look, the fact that orcs are not nominally human doesn't matter. They're human-like enough. Uh, You know, it's like a flimsy facade of non-humanness to allow us to do the thing that we always love to do with our fellow human beings, which is to other them as a prelude to killing them. And in as much as we are reading fictions about it, we are rehearsing that othering and preparing ourselves for fresh acts of aggression against categories of actual human beings and the actual world we inhabit. And so then, okay, would you feel okay if there were computer viruses? Not aliens. Aliens are already like, you know, you can see them becoming proxies for human beings. But how about computer viruses? Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of uh, science fiction that would probably make a move like that. But the problem is that it seems to me that if you are saying that an orc can be a proxy for a human being, why can't a computer virus also be a proxy for a human being? Yeah. Anything that you set up in a story as an other, as an enemy, can be understood allegorically as a, as a stand-in for the human. I don't know if there's any move you can make that would satisfy what that critique basically is asking for. And what that critique is asking for is the absence of conflict, of intergroup conflict. Right. And I don't know if you can have stories without that, or mm-hmm. at least... You can't have a whole lot of stories. There's a whole variety of story that you can't tell anymore. And getting back to Le Guin, actually, it's kind of interesting how she handles it, that the adversary here, you know, you encounter some people who are kind of assholes, like Jasper is an asshole, right? The dragon Um, is pretty bad. (laughs) Dragon's an asshole. Yeah. Um, Senate, the woman who turns out to be a wicked sorcerer. Trying to trick him who tries to trick him into becoming the slave of this old power of the earth called the Terranon. Uh, she's an asshole, mm-hmm. right? But the adversary we have, you got to have an adversary and we have a terrific adversary in the form of this shadow monster. You know, by the time you get to the end of the story, Gad has chased this thing almost literally to the ends of the earth. Like literally where the earth like, and sea meld together. Yeah. And it is in this impossible domain that Gad finally faces down the shadow. And the denouement is that he embraces this monster. And at this precise moment, both the shadow and Gad say each other's true name. And the true name for both of them is Gad. Yeah. And at that moment, the shadow is not defeated. Gad and his shadow are unified. 
right. in some way, two sides of, of a whole. And in this way, she actually does manage to have her cake and eat it too. We have an almost all-powerful adversary that needs to be defeated, but it's not an other because it's also at the same time the hero. So I can't help but think that Le Guin is thinking pretty deeply about like how do you write fantasy without on some level participating in this othering. Mm -hmm. That yeah. being said, I don't know how sustainable that is as a thing for fiction writers generally. If you are trying to live within the parameters where you're not allowing any class of character to be an object of othering, I mean, it worked for Le Guin, but I don't know how many stories you can tell like that. Right. So all of this is to say that while I have some sympathy for that kind of critique of Tolkien, at the same time, in a way, it's also kind of unhelpful because it's just like, yeah, but then how do we tell stories? You know, this othering, there's a lot of social scientific research that shows how when human beings work themselves up to perform acts of violence, to kill other human beings, it's actually really unnatural for human beings to kill other human beings. We don't like it. And so in war and for like mafia hitmen, they have to work themselves up to the point that they can take another human life. And that always has to do with othering, right? Mm -hmm. That's some real shit about how human beings work. And yeah. to insist that fiction have nothing to do with that, in a sense, is to insist that fiction have nothing to do with how human beings work. And that seems to me to kind of X out the whole point of fiction, of stories in the first place. All of which is to say that othering is our shadow, just as Ged's shadow is his shadow. And how does Ged defeat the shadow? Not by defeating it, you know, running it through with a sword, whatever, but by integrating with it. And likewise, I can't help but think, I mean, for all of these well-meaning critiques of our tendency to other, by trying to simply say, well, then don't do it, is not actually doing the work of encountering our shadow. It's interesting that in Earthsea, Wizard of Earthsea, um, there is a debate among wizards about what this shadow creature is. Yeah, Some true. wizards believe that there are a race of creatures that live in the underworld, Mm -hmm. uh, in that terrible place outside the sunlit world. So th in that case, they would have names. Some believe that they don't have true names and that, and therefore they cannot be defeated. There's a debate within the world about what these things are. And these are ways of trying to other them properly. But in the end, the answer is that the, the, the only other is the projection of the shadow, which is the union. I mean, this is kind of union 101, right? You can only other yourself. Like whenever you're othering, you're projecting onto someone else your own shit. Mm -hmm. And it's only by individuating, you know, in the union sense about, about incorporating the shadow that you can see things clearly. Nevertheless, once you see things clearly in the union model, you still have to make distinctions between things. And one of the problems I have when you take that critique too far is that then any distinction becomes a problem. Mm. And that's not a tenable position to hold because even that in itself is making a distinction. So it's contradicting itself. Another thing I'd like to say about Tolkien, and I think we should probably get back to, to Le Guin you know, uh, after this, is that the whole macro conflict between humans, elves, and hobbits, and dwarves on the one side, and orcs on the other, that conflict is mirrored 
in the in the Frodo storyline in a very different way. Frodo, his quest is a one person's quest to go and throw the ring into Mount Doom. Uh, the orcs are just an environmental hazard for him. He just wants to get away from the orcs so he can get to mm. the to the yeah. volcano. His enemy is Gollum, and Gollum is a hobbit. Gollum is Frodo's shadow. Gollum oh, yes, is the corruptibility right. of the self. Is and yeah. and Frodo hates Gollum because he's projecting his own self enslavement to the Ring onto Gollum, and it, it that whole dynamic mm. does play out in Lord of the Rings. And a critique that only pays attention to the macro history, which is the kind of like the epic battle between these what are essentially supernatural forces, you know, like mm-hmm. Sauron versus the elves and all that. Uh, if you just stop there, you're not paying it. The heart of the story is very different. And I think that if you read the conflict between elves and orcs, for instance, um, through the lens of Frodo's conflict with Gollum and himself, the whole thing looks very different. I mean, it just That's seems really like if you're going to critique it, you got to you got to look at the whole picture. Yeah. And so, although I do think that Tolkien uh, brings up these problems and these questions and these challenges to to European civilization and, th- and to how we think about the place of Europe in the world, I think this is all fair. At the same time, I think that we should uh, be generous enough to see him as someone who is exploring these issues, just like Le Guin is, and, and, and to the best of his abilities and from his own personal vantage point, which is all an artist can do. I just want to get rid of this blanketing, this kind of like uh, this typological <laughs> anti-typology mm-hmm. that you see yeah. in the critique against fantasy. It's just mm-hmm. not useful. Yeah. Um, and plus it's stupid in the end because all fiction is fantasy, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it, it's just, yeah. I just don't think that writing about kings means that you are a fascist. it's just not it's just not not true so you know i really like the point that you made that Gollum is uh frodo's shadow which is obvious i guess but from that point of view actually the 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 climax of lord of the rings is not too different from the climax of wizard of earthsea exactly and that you know as as he is standing at the very rim of the volcano Frodo is holding the ring and his whole thing is he has to throw it into the volcano and he says, no, I'm not going to do this. And at that precise moment, Gollum attacks him and Gollum is not attacking him to make him go through with his intention. He just wants to take the ring back. But in doing so, his low, you know, if you think about Gollum as his shadow, his lower nature or whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. in his lower nature doing what the lower nature does, which is to be purely self-seeking, tunnel vision, just wanting its thing, wanting the precious. Yeah, my precious. Uh, it, It serves good because it's in doing that, that he actually wrestles the ring away from Frodo, has to bite his finger off to do it, but in so doing, loses balance and pitches into the volcano. It's a little bit actually like uh, someone else who lost balance and pitches headlong to their doom. Sister Ruth in Black Narcissus. There's a point that you made, or that we made in that episode, is that in a way that's almost like a sacrifice she performs for the community, that is in doing that, this act of violence that she attempts against Sister Clode, and ends up, of course, inflicting on herself accidentally that 
Sister Claude and the other sisters can kind of attain their, I don't know, destinies, a pompous word for it, but they, yeah. they get to where they needed to go. And likewise, Gollum, by doing what he does, he allows Frodo to be a complete man. He allows Frodo to be the man he was always meant to be, which is to be the guy who ditches the ring. He has to lose a finger to do it, but nevertheless, which also seems to be symbolic in some way. Yeah. But that's sort of what happens to Ged at the end of Wizard of Earth, that he and his shadow come together violently, forcefully, just as Frodo and Gollum do. And the consequence of that is completion. Yes. Completion through the wound, through the, yeah. you know, accepting that like the, the loss of Frodo's finger is interesting for different reasons. I was just looking up which finger he loses. It's the third finger, which I guess it's the middle finger. Because, um, I mean, the, the finger, I think, symbolically is a, a symbol of judgment. You point, you point to other something. You point well, at the third, it. The middle, the middle finger is the one that you tell somebody to fuck off with. Yeah. So, which is a so, way of judging know. people. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so in a way it's like Frodo in, uh, when, he, Fro Gollum can't die unless Frodo, a part of Frodo dies with Gollum, which is yeah. symbolized by the finger that, that we're on which the ring. Oh, interesting. Uh, answers itself. So, so the, 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 the same kind of thing is going on in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And yeah. I think that the only reason we want to defend that is to show that there is much more to fantasy than uh, that critique, that yes. sociopolitical critique would, would suggest. Before we started recording, I, I reread Ursula Gwynn's fantastic speech that she gave when she won the National Book Award in 2014, I think. Mm -hmm. So she wins the National Book Award. It's almost unheard of for a fantasist to win this award. Yeah. Uh, it's usually given to people like Paul Oster, although I don't know if Paul Oster actually won it. But interestingly, Paul Oster, by the way, wrote a really good essay that, or an introduction to something that I read about style and about how you're always trying to develop a transparent style. Like mm -hmm. basically the moment you have your style as a writer is when you, you're not trying to have a style anymore. Which, which, is goes, which is another way of saying what I was trying to say about Le Guin exactly, at the beginning exactly. of this conversation. Just throw that yeah, in. Yeah, no, that's nice. I like that. But uh, so Le Guin, she says, I think hard times are coming. This is 2014 when we will be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now and see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being, and even imagine some real grounds for hope. We will need writers who can remember freedom, poets, visionaries, the realists of a larger reality. Right now, I think we need writers who know the difference between the production of a market commodity and the practice of an art. 
Developing written material to suit sales strategies in order to maximize corporate profit and advertising revenue is not quite the same thing as responsible book publishing and authorship. Blah, 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 blah. Poets, visionaries, the realists of a larger reality. I just, I love that phrase, the, the realists of a larger reality. What she's saying is that what is normally understood to be realist fiction is actually not realist at all. That the fiction or the art of a poet or a visionary is always faithful to a realism that exceeds the limits of what mainstream non-fantastical fiction constitutes. So you were saying earlier that this, you were talking about this ghettoization. Yeah. And this ghettoization doesn't just harm fantasy. It also harms realistic fiction. Yeah. Because it prevents us from seeing the fantasy in realist fiction. It yeah. prevents us from seeing that in a way, all fiction comes up from that dark power outside the sunlit world. It comes from a place before reason, you know, before mm. uh, the the clear classification of the real into these neat categories. And so the imagination doesn't have the laws that we observe, you know, governing the world outside of us. I'm writing about this right now. And I was imagining... Okay, I'll just throw it at you. Imagine that on three separate nights, you have a very similar dream. And um, each of these dreams starts the same way. You're sitting under an apple tree and an apple falls on your head. And as dreams are want to do, this like fills you with dread. You need to know why this happened to you. Like, oh my God, the apple fell on my head. Why did, you know? So you go and seek I out- I had an, the apple dream again. Yeah, exactly. So you go out and seek Wake out an answer. Wake up in a cold sweat, screaming. You go and, and, and look for answers. In the first dream, the first time you have this dream, you find a witch and she tells you that the tree threw the apple at you because it's an old grumpy tree, doesn't like people sitting under it. And you're like, oh, okay, that's why it happened. In the second dream, you find like a monk who tells you that the apple is primarily composed of the element of earth. And so when the apple detaches from the tree, it, go, it seeks rest. And so it falls towards the earth where it can be at rest, which would be the Aristotelian explanation for gravity. Right. And in the third dream, you find a guy in a wig who tells you that the apple hit your head because you just happened to be there. There's no reason for it. It's just that the apple is small and the earth is big and little things like to stick to big things. And you're like, well, why? And he goes, well, that's just, it's just the law of the universe. And then you wake up from the third dream. Now the question is in the dream world, is any one of these three answers the correct one? Right? Hmm. Like you can hmm. imagine a dream in which you discover gravity. But that yeah. doesn't make gravity real in the dream. That's interesting. And if you write a book set in a world with gravity and the gravity, gravity exists as Newton described it, you're just picking that law. It doesn't actually exist in the fictional world. Mm -hmm. Like in a way, even a, a contemporary realist romantic novel about people falling in love in Paris is a fantasy to the extent that it just arbitrarily assumes for imaginative purposes, certain laws that obtain in our world. Like, okay, think about a movie like Casablanca, right? Play it again, Sam. So the piano player is sitting there. Is he being held to the bench by gravity? No, 
The actor was sitting on the bench thanks to gravity when they filmed it. But in the world, gravity doesn't exist until it matters in the aesthetic Mm -hmm. world. And what I'm saying is that the laws of imagination aren't limited to the laws of physics. So that the laws of physics, however, are a construct of our imagination. As Hume showed, we don't, we can't see them. So in a sense, the larger realism, the larger reality that Ursula Le Guin is talking about is a reality that goes beyond what we perceive to be reality, which is actually just a model that we invent. In fact, we don't really know why gravity exists or whether it'll exist tomorrow. The imagination is precisely the moment where we free ourselves from these habits that Hume said we just accumulate in order to explain the world to ourselves. I don't know. I just okay, like I've it, got, I'm, I just for fun, I'm going to pretend to be a realist of a certain kind and say, I don't find your argument persuasive because you're talking about how explanations are no more or less relevant in a dream. I mean, it could befall you that you dream a dream that involves gravity where Isaac Newton shows up and explains to you that the reason the apple hit your head is because small things are drawn to large things, but that there's no necessity for that, that a fictional world could as easily, you know, apples could fall on heads because the tree is grumpy. And in fiction, there's no a priori reason to privilege the scientific explanation over the magical explanation. Mm-hmm. Am I getting you right? Yes. Well, somebody could say yes, but why should dreams be the measure of fiction? Dreams, as we know, because science tells us this, are but the kind of rubbish removal system of the mind. You encounter various things during the day. For example, a bird shits on you. Actually, this happened to my daughter yesterday. She bought a new book and she was reading it and she's really into it. And then a bird shit on it. <laughs> and she was so pissed off, she sent me a stream of outraged texts about it. I told her that this was very good luck. And uh, she, right. she uh, remains unconvinced, I believe, about that. But anyway, um, so with dreams, you know, a bird shits on you. And then you have a dream about, you know, I don't know, a toilet backing up. And why did you have that dream? Well, you know, somebody who is interested in psychological symbolism might be, well, you know, the toilet and the sludge that comes out of it symbolizes the repressed unconscious mind, all the the dark places in ourselves, the shadow. But a rationalist, uh, somebody who is a kind of a, a scientific realist would say, oh, no, the dreams are simply the rehearsal of fragments of things that happen to you. And then in your sleep, the dream has a function to work through the events of the day and kind of bundle them up with the trash and set them outside by the curb for pickup. It's a way of working through the events of the day so that we can move on afresh every morning that we wake up. And then from that point of view, the dream of the overflowing toilet isn't about you encountering repressed dark parts of yourselves. It's just that a bird shat on you the earlier day. That's it. So why should we take dreams, which have this rather um, unimpressive 
uh, hygienic function. Why should that be the measure of fiction? On the contrary, if I were a Marxist, I might say that fiction exists to show us things about social reality. The purpose of fiction is not merely to represent things, but to enact changes in us that we become more conscious of systems of oppression and therefore are more apt to do something about them. That is what fiction is for. You being some kind of Vanier hippie have simply <laughs> decided that dreams are where it's at. I say that it's social reality that's where it's at. Right. Well, I think that just to go back a step, um, the condition under which our thought labors in dreams is precisely the same condition under which we labor in reality. That was Hume's argument, and it's not an argument that's easily refuted. What Hume was arguing, and I'll just summarize it very, very quickly, Hume was basically looking at you know, what's called the problem of induction. And he's saying that we observe these regularities in the world, and we form from these regularities the idea of laws that govern these regularities. So for instance, the sun comes up every day, or when you hit a billiard ball at a particular angle, the billiard ball you hit will go at that particular angle. I guess the laws of motion or something govern these interactions. And of course, it's the cosmological, you know, system that tells us that the sun must rise tomorrow if it rose today. But all Hume was saying was that these laws, these physical laws, causality itself cannot be deduced a priori. There is no logical reason why effect B must follow cause A. There is no logical reason. It's just we observe it and we derive from this habit of observing laws. And those laws may be real laws. He's not saying that those laws don't exist. He's just saying that they have no rational basis. We have no reason to believe that the laws exist. We have, we have we, an empirical we, reason, but that's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. That's just the, that's the point though. You can derive all kinds of logical laws a priori, the law of the excluded middle, the law of the non-contradiction, in the sense that if you want to argue against it, you presuppose it. It's what uh, Aristotle called apodictic. It's like you can't argue against it without affirming it. Okay. But causality is not that. So the moment you realize this, you realize that, oh, you're under the conditions of a dreaming self right now. It's just the regularities are happening, but your judgments about those regularities are on a par with any of the three explanations in those three dreams. They're just different ways of explaining the regularities. So if anything, you could say that even though we, of course, we need to embrace something like gravity to explain the world that we live in, that world is already a priori in a dream. It's already dreamlike because we don't have the means of extracting from this world a priori causal laws. Those things come a posteriori from the dreaming itself. So it's like you're using dream stuff to explain how the dream functions, but the dream stuff is, is made of dream stuff. There's just no way out of the dreaminess of it all. <laughs> and so I'm not trying to say that's to prove that gravity doesn't exist. What I'm saying is that the other two explanations could also coexist mm -hmm. with that one.
It could also be the case that, and that's obvious when you think about it, that an old grumpy conscious tree would drop an apple on your head in order to get you to go away. That explanation and Newton's explanation are just two ways of seeing something that's already a priori dreamlike. Um, and which is, which is why a culture can flourish for literally millennia thinking on those terms. Like, mm. we don't realize how long we were animists and how many cultures remain animists and function. They work. Those are not suicidal civilizations. They, somehow these civilizations function. You don't keep using a tool that doesn't work. I guess what I see in Hume is an opportunity to expand the range of what we call rational. Because since causality in itself is an irrational belief, and not in a judgmental way, it's irrational in the sense that it's not grounded in reason. Um, since that's the case, and yet it is a perfectly sensible belief, that we might be able to see the sensibility in other ways of, of understanding reality that find their place in fantastic literature. Maybe these, these things aren't as opposed as we think they are. They all kind of come from a place of fabulation. They all come from a place of, of using dream just to produce more dream. It's like you know, we're never popping out of the dream. We're never in the mm -hmm. disenchanted place that we've assumed we, we were in. Mm. So this is maybe the reason why you would say that all fiction is fantasy. Yes, it, it is even one the reason. Most, even realistic fiction that does what we want stories to do is still coming from a place of dreaming, even if all the characters are contemporary Manhattanites pursuing their love affairs and their career disappointments and whatnot. Yeah, and I would say that in being that way, fiction calls us to the dreamlikeness of our reality. Yeah. That's why Le Guin is right to call poets and visionaries the realists of a larger reality. That larger reality is precisely that kind of realm of the infinitely possible that we actually inhabit. That's super interesting. This actually reminds me of an exchange that we've been having on the Patreon which uh, this is yet another pitch for our Patreon. There's a lot of good shit on our Patreon, folks. Um, and the most recent thing we've put up there at the time we're recording this is an email exchange we had right around, right around New Year's about what I call diviner's time. So I have an essay that I wrote. It's a short essay, which is also up on our Patreon. I'm actually rewriting it to make it a little bit longer right now. But in doing that, I was sort of like you know, having some thoughts about it, and which I shared with you. And then you wrote back and you're like, well, this idea that you have a diviner's time is actually a lot like Kairos and Kairos being one of those senses of time that the ancient Greeks had, the others being Kronos and Ion, uh, Kronos being clock time you know, seconds and minutes and hours passing in an orderly succession in a straight line, an arrow into the future. Kairos, by contrast, and I'm going to leave Ion out of it for now, but Kairos, by contrast, is not that clock time, but human time or felt time, meaningful time, or a time made meaningful by a sense of timing. So it's the time of the opportune moment of the uh, well-timed action. So the example I gave in our 
email correspondence was, you know, the fact that a fighter gets knocked out at two minutes and 37 seconds of the second round, that's the business of Kronos. But the fact that the knockout is the violent punctuation at the end of a long beef between those fighters, that fighter A is knocking out a hated rival. That's the business of Kairos, the meaning of the event, and the sense of that event happening at such a time as to bear forth a certain meaning, right? The, the word Kairos. Payback or, or some shit like yeah, that. Yeah, right. It? The word Kairos also means weather in ancient Greek, which is interesting. Because mm, the weather is, in French, we say le temps. Le temps meaning temp, the weather. Um, that's the same word is used. So that gives you a sense of what they mean. It's, it's in relation mm -hmm. to us. It's in relation to our experience. It's time yeah. as felt, as experienced, as it, right. what it signifies for us. Yeah. yeah. So I wrote back saying that this is interesting and there is clearly a relationship between that sense of like meaningful time, time that you can think of as the time that disposes the affairs of our lives in a manner like music, where there are cadences, like a knockout you could think of as a particularly fierce kind of cadence. Um, cadences and resolutions and dissonances and counterpoints and so on, all of those musical terms. This is a point that I develop and think about diviner's time, which is basically the time we inhabit in divination and in the encounter with synchronicity, with magical results. And I said, well, you know, diviner's time differs from Kairos in the sense that it has always this air of strangeness to it, this weirdness to it. And he said, yeah, and this is uh, the point that I'm making and connecting to what you were just saying now. You're saying, yeah, but Kairos is always synchronistic. There's always some element of synchronicity in any kind of well-timed moment. So I gave some examples of very mundane well-timed moments, like knowing the right moment to leave a boring party. Right. And your comment that even such tiny and seemingly insignificant moments of Kairos nevertheless always have within them the germ, the seed of synchronicity. Yeah. I thought that was very interesting. And it's a, it's a productive thought because it makes you notice moments of good timing that happen in your life. And if you think to yourself, good timing always has this aspect of synchronicity to it. And yeah. then if you really examine that and you think, is there a synchronicity there? You will find synchronicities. You will find a little kernel of strangeness at the heart of every such moment. Like yeah. the moment to leave a good party. Like I can slip out. Nobody will notice that I'm gone. And then by the time I'm gone, people will be like, oh, where's Phil? And uh, yeah. this is the moment. You have the exact awareness that no one is paying attention to you. I can make my break for it. It, it always takes the form of a concrete event. For instance, you're at the party uh, and you're talking to yet another boring person, but all of a sudden they get called away or their phone rings and they step, I'll be right back. Yeah. And then they move. And all of a sudden these people part and you see the door and you're like, Now's and you time. look around and everybody's talking to somebody. No one's looking in your direction. Yeah. There's a clear path to the door. 
it's material reality has conspired to give you this opening. That's Kairos. And then yeah. you go and you're like, oh, God, I, I did it. It's just like and when you had that wonderful feeling as the door closes behind you and you got out scot-free, squeaky you clean. Know. Yeah. And you know that it was the right time. You're not worried. You're not worried. Well, well, you know, maybe some, someone will notice. You're like, oh, maybe Janet will notice that I left. But I don't care because I left at the right time. You just yeah. know that it was the right time to leave. It's like yeah. when you're in a super mundane example is when you're, uh, you're trying to get onto a busy street, right? Mm-hmm. And you're in your car. And so you're waiting there and there's just traffic coming and coming and coming. And you're like, it's conceivable that this traffic never, ever, ever, ever ends. <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. like, but <laughs> yeah. it always, there's always this weird opening. <laughs> it's like, yeah. and you experience it as a kind of kairos. It's like, yeah. okay, the universe is like, oh, you've been waiting for three minutes now. Okay, here's a little gap. Get on the road. You're fine. Like, mm-hmm. it's just experienced as that, that way. And because the universe is not beholden to us. It doesn't need to give us these openings. Yeah. In fact, it didn't need to allow life to evolve on Earth. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. That required an incredible moment of Kairos. The thing that I found really productive in that exchange was the idea that it's, it's almost like a practice you can engage in. And I can recommend this to the folks at home listening to this. Go through your day, notice moments of good timing, just ordinary moments of good timing. And be on the lookout for like, what is, what are the material conditions that allowed that good moment of timing to happen? And if you do that, you will notice that it is always synchronistic. There's always something a little strange. Mm-hmm. And so when we're talking about the radical strangeness of reality, the dreamlike quality of reality, that's something that's empirically knowable. You can observe yeah. this in your life. And getting back to what you were saying before I went off on diviner's time and all of that, uh, you're talking about how even the most uh, seemingly realistic of fictions always has this fantastic element. Again, this could be like a practice, a practice of literary criticism for those of our listeners who are inclined to approach literature in a mood of literary criticism and analysis. Read something that's just straight up realistic, but look for similarly those moments of the dreamlike And then you will quickly realize that all fiction, at least fiction that communicates on an emotional level that means something to you, uh, is actually profoundly strange. It's full of dreamlike weirdnesses. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.